The Spin-Off Podcast Network. Ready to rediscover the joys of cycling? With over 300 kilometres of cycle paths across Tamaki Makoto, jumping on your bike and going for a ride is such a fun way to discover the city from a different perspective. Cycling is getting more and more popular across Auckland, so now's a great time to join the hype and give cycling a go. Head to at.govt forward slash cycling to find your nearest cycleway today. Are you making the most of your KiwiSaver investment? Generate is an award-winning KiwiSaver provider with a track record of strong long-term performance. Making a smart decision now could add tens of thousands of dollars by the time you reach retirement. Book a no-obligation chat with a Generate KiwiSaver advisor today at generatekiwisaver.co.nz slash advice. A copy of the product disclosure statement is available at generatekiwisaver.co.nz. The issuer of the scheme is Generate Investment Management Limited and, of course, past performance does not guarantee future returns. Kia ora and welcome to The Good Citizen, a podcast where we talk to people with good ideas for the future of our cities. I'm your host, Jeremy Hansen, and this podcast is brought to you by Britomart, the nine-block precinct at the heart of downtown Auckland, where good ideas and good citizens are always welcome. Today, I'm joined by architect Richard Goldie. Welcome, Richard. Kia ora. Richard is a director at Petalthorpe Architects, based in Britomart, incidentally, and his proposal for a downtown waterfront stadium for Auckland is a finalist in the World Architecture Festival's Future Projects category. Now, Richard, you're part of a consortium that came up with this idea. Can you tell us about the genesis of the idea and why you think it's a good one? Yes. So we will all recall probably that we got almost close to have a Waterfront Stadium for the Rugby World Cup last time. This is the one that Sports Minister Trevor Mallard proposed for the bottom of Queen Street. That's correct, yes. And, you know, the location for a building of that scale is debatable, and I'll tell you why that's relevant in in a minute. But unfortunately, in those days before the Super City was formed, the ARC controlled the water, and um, the ARC, in their wisdom, said no. So we now have this issue. Do you think it would have been good if that stadium proposal went ahead? No, I don't think so. I think stadia, by nature, especially above ground stadia, and this is the point I'm coming to eventually, are really tough um, because they're generally inward-focused buildings and their edges are ghastly. So, um, and there are very few, if I can't even name any examples, where the edges have been what we would call um, fringed with with an act of use. So, um, it's a common sort of urban design tool that architects use, say, you have a car park, we're doing one at the moment, you fringe the public streets with a hotel. So you've got an active frontage against an otherwise passive or negative um, action. Um, function program. Tell me about this proposal of yours and how you've designed it to get around those problems that you've identified. Well, the the famous sunken stadium, Mm. aka the crater as we call it. (laughs) So the top of the, uh, uh, the highest point of the stadium is obviously the back of the uppermost seats. That point for our stadium is actually at Key Street level. So we are basically, the top of that sits roughly at the level of the existing surface of Bledisloe Wharf. And consequently, there's quite a big thing to build downwards, about 25 metres down. Um, It's about 8 to 10 metres down to the seabed there. Um, And then you've got to go down another sort of 15 to 20. 
which is, you know, not an, a, an unreasonable undertaking. But as I like to remind people, you did used to build things like dams in this country, and we once built a harbour bridge. So the technology isn't really that different. And if you look at those things, the harbour bridge is nearly 70 years old, I think, 60 years old. Um, you know, it's doable. It's still a very large inward-facing building. Yeah. On a piece of the waterfront which Aucklanders have been wanting access to for ages, does it not represent a barrier then to that access to the harbour that people have been desiring and we've sort of been implicitly promised for a long time? Well, I have to paint you a word picture because this is a podcast. Yeah, well, we'll have pictures to accompany it on no, the no, side. No, no, that's all cool. So um, the nice thing about dropping it down then is that you avoid that huge back that a stadium naturally has. So, you know, for example, if you walk up to Eden Park, it's a kind of tarmac-loaded token landscape kind of nasty experience when you get in there it's really exciting if you drop this down it means that um, you don't have that and the perimeter of the uh, or your experience of the perimeter of the stadium is really you approach it from the top so you don't have the big back so that's the first thing um, the second thing is of course that as part of this stadium the entire wharf of Bledisloe Wharf is intended to be developed aka um, or similar to when you're caught up so we have actually benchmarked Winyu Quarter in terms of site coverage, density and so forth because we know the outcomes of Winyu Quarter are pretty damn good. Um, then on the seaward side, which is sort of the north and western side of the stadium, of course we're abutting the sea directly. And what we propose there is if you go, for example now, if you cross the harbour, uh, the viaduct basin to Winyu Quarter, you go across that lovely bridge. That simple bridge, um, which may or may not be replaced one day. And on the left-hand side, there's these wonderful water steps where you see people swimming and carrying on bathing their feet in the water. We basically propose the entire perimeter of, on the north and west of the stadium to be dressed with those steps. So we're going to create a, actually an accessible edge to the water, to the harbour, to the Waitamata, which is unusual because it's hard to name another one in the CBD apart from those water steps in Winyard Corner. And so the idea... And as we go on, of course, most of the wharves are being deindustrialized. To the east, they are more so, of course, with the existing wharf activities. But we think, I mean, the harbour's obviously going to get cleaner and cleaner and cleaner. The central intercept is coming into place. So I can see us, Jeremy, in 10 years' time, wandering down there at lunchtime with our bathers. Not in our bathers, but it, with our bathers. And perhaps even swimming off those steps, you know. Or you could have water sports, you could have the Masters Games, you could have Fokker racing, you know, you could have the whole lot. So um, it'd be pretty cool. Which sounds idyllic, but why would you not just have the steps and not the stadium? Auckland, we believe, needs a stadium. Um, Eden Park is really on a lifeline. Uh, council have thrown some money at it. ASB have withdrawn their loan to it. Um, it is greatly hamstrung by the resource consent around it in terms of the number of games it can play each year and the number of events they can hold. And even if you wish to have, say, a music event, you still need to get a separate resource consent for that. And we saw an example of that earlier this year where it failed. The cost of doing resource consents is very expensive. And I think we have a fairly mobilised neighbourhood there that say, no, we don't want it. So we sense that the time for Eden Park is gone. But what makes the waterfront the right place for an alternative? Well, it's not so much... I mean, the question is here is what is the place of a building and landscape, I suppose? And traditionally, I guess, and even contemporarily, you see examples, say, of Soheta doing extraordinary buildings in extraordinarily sensitive environments. Um, 
you've got to be very, very careful. You're talking about the opera house that looks a bit like an iceberg in the harbour in Oslo in Norway. Uh, yes, and they've done another hotel in a fjord in Norway, yes. and they've done the underground, the underwater restaurant and things like that, which we would never contemplate doing, I don't think, those kinds of intrusions into such careful landscapes. Um, I was thinking of the opera house in particular because a lot of people seem to only utilise that by walking around the perimeter of the building and up and down it rather than attending opera inside. So it becomes a public, a civic asset in that sense. That's the idea. The other thing, of course, is that we propose this thing to be fully roofed and enclosed. So, for example, um, Mount Smart's done its dash. Where do we? Where does Adele play? So putting the roof in there, we like to say, never again see Adele in the rain. And, you know, too many people have gone to too many concerts at, Western, at Mount Smart and had to put on the poncho. Now that's kind of... Dunkirk spirity, but, you know, really, we don't need that anymore. Um, so the real trick to this is to make sure that it's active, and, of course, the edge will always be active because it'll be part of the integrated part of the, that waterfront redevelopment, but the interior must also be active, so it's not necessarily for rugby. In fact, the example of Forsyth Bar Stadium in Dunedin is really interesting. Rugby is less than 15% of the use and almost zero revenue. Now, these things cost money to run. We, are all, we already know from council organisations that Auckland is losing events because we don't have a venue. They may play Mount Smart, but they have to insure themselves against things like weather. And probably you'd find that if Adele didn't have to, she wouldn't have played. So we've got to generate something that's really genuinely usable for so many different events. So obviously rugby's the, the only thing we wouldn't play is the small ball game is cricket, or obviously baseball or basketball, netball, which is... Um, sorry, softball, which has different shapes of field. But we would you would certainly play rugby, you would certainly play league. We've had the NRL say they would play a state of origin game here. You would play football. So, you know, you're, suddenly you're talking to a much bigger audience. And then there's the cultural stuff from rock concerts through to Kapahaka, uh, Pacifica Fest. You could have, this could be, you know, our town hall. For all of that stuff. But why the water if you've got up to 65,000 people sitting in a stadium looking inside and not out? Why wouldn't you locate that, say, on the adjacent railway land where there's another proposal um, where it's not very far away, but it's also not blocking or inhibiting public access to the Waitemata? Well, we don't think it is inhibiting public access to the Waitemata. It's more curating it, if you like. So that, that water edge that we talk about... Um, obviously uh, is accessible 24-7, um, as is the perimeter of the rest of the stadium. The only thing that isn't necessarily is the inside. But you could certainly walk around it. You could walk around it while, say, who knows, the roosters were coming to play. They might practice there. So you go down at lunchtime and watch them, or some, a kapahaka group might be practicing in there, and you could go and you know wander around and watch them from the outside. So... The interior, yes, needs a lot of activation. And the other thing, too, of course, that not every event is 65,000. The, the, the goal for Rugby World Cup to host it is 70, so you do that with temporary seating. We're 50, but you need to be able to scale, up, scale down as well to, say, 20. Now, Vector, I think, is around 12, or Spark, is it now? Is it nine? It's about 12, so you need to do it 20, 25. The technique for doing that now, and you already see that at Spark, is that what they do is they drop curtains so that you force a crowd. So the rule is, it's a bit like smart restaurateurs. They may have a certain restaurant space, but on Tuesday when they're quiet, they close a section off and put a curtain through to get that sort of density and that sort of 
aggregation effect of a crowd, which is part of the fun and the reason why you go. So there's a whole lot of ways of making the thing active. And it must, it genuinely must be active and it must be used and hence it's a strong emphasis on its multifunctionality so that the inside is, you know, arguably as active as what you've gone, got going on around the outside. And the activity of that building therefore brings a bustle and an energy to the waterfront itself. Is that your argument? Oh, yes. And and also you leverage already the incredible investment in the city and the incredible infrastructure, social and commercial and transport that we already have. So Eden Park's demonstrated that tra- getting people to, tra- on, to games on trains works full time. But in the CBD, as you know, in Britomart, we have hotels, we have restaurants and bars, we have shopping. So if people come to an event, I mean, the classic one is um, when Ed Sheeran played in Dunners, they say that his contribution over a weekend to the Dunedin economy was $25 million. And the reason that works is because you fly down on Friday afternoon, you go out and do a little bit of, have a couple of drinks and go to dinner, have a bit of a laugh, you stay in a hotel. Next day, get up, you repeat, you might do a little shopping. You go to the event, you go out afterwards, Sunday morning, you go out again, you have breakfast, you might do a little bit of catch-up shopping, you jump on a plane and you're gone. So your 200 to $250 ticket turns into a $2,000 weekend per person. And so you do that and you've got 50,000 people, maybe you know half of them are local, half of them aren't. You know, these things start to really, really generate good business for the city. But, you know, again, it's all about... If you, you know, at the deepest essence, the, one of the deepest essences, I think, of sort of sustainability in terms of the use of things um, is that you have to use them as often as you can and as thoroughly as you can. And so, you know, I speak, I think that speaks really well to a lot of the things we're already doing. When the CRL takes play, it comes into play, you know, we've got twice the capacity on the train lines. Well, suddenly you've got lots and lots of people on those trains. Coming from all sorts of places. You mentioned before the the range of engineering challenges you're setting up for yourself by doing a stadium that's partially immersed in the water. Mm-hmm. Hi, I'm Russell Brown, and I'll make a podcast for the spin-off called Actually Interesting. Those are also the initials of its topic, artificial intelligence, which is very interesting. You can find us on your favourite podcast providers or on thespinoff.co.nz. Why would you take on those challenges especially in an area of rising sea levels, when you could build, as I mentioned before, on adjacent railway land that delivers the same benefits to Auckland's downtown heart um, without the extra expense that your project seems to entail? Well, I think there's two things there. The railway land um, stadium is not without the extra expense because what you have to do there is you have to realign Key Street. So you, the railway yarding area of the wharfs, the ports on the southern side of Button Key Street has to be has to go to straighten out Key Street to be able to give you the width. These things are not small. Um, secondly, you've got the same urban problem. You've got the back of a indoor space, and those edges are really hard to populate and make active. So we've created a solved that problem. Um, thirdly, consenting something like that with the views from places like the museum and so forth to the harbour will be extremely difficult. Now, ours also will be difficult, except for the fact that it'll be a good 25 metres lower. So one of the things we've been really careful about is with this roof is it's actually lifted up on Pilotti, which is an architect's term for a column, um, and the roof then hovers across the top of it. But we have been really careful. We've cut cross-sections from the city 
through the stadium right up to the Rangitoto. And we know that you can see under the roof to the peak of Rangitoto and North Head and so forth as well. So the panorama of the harbour is still preserved. How tall is the stadium edge that people would be looking at on the waterfront, the equivalent of five or six floor buildings? Um, so the top of the roof would be around about the top of, let me quickly do the maths in my head, about a seven to eight storey building. Mm-hmm. Mm. Um, except for the fact that I would argue it's not a it's a building, it's a pavilion. So a pavilion is de- is is demarked by its roof and an open under you know undercroft if you like um i guess you know the real challenge i think the and the real question is do you do buildings in landscape now being an architect i sort of always thought that a nice piece of landscape is quite often well offset by an elegant building and the challenge of course for something like this is really tough because look at the um Look at the exemplars, Sydney Opera House. I mean, you know, my God. So it's an enormous responsibility. Um, And, you know, what we have proposed, we're happy with. Certainly not to say that that's the last of it. So there's quite a bit to do yet. Um, One of the things we have been looking at, because I've just been on a tour of the States and, well, not so recently, Japan to look at the stadium. Um, We went to a 70,000-seat stadium under construction in Los Angeles for the Rams. And the geometry of the way they've set the seating out actually reduces the footprint of what that would otherwise be quite considerably. So in our next iteration, that's sort of our first design task is to consider and maybe recast the way the seating geometry works, which would reduce the overall footprint because we are conscious of the scale of that thing against the, you know, against in its context, which is the harbour and... Um, and the surrounding landscape. Um, you know, so, yeah, it's it's fascinating, it's challenging. These are also buildings that require an enormous amount of servicing, the logistics that come with feeding, providing drinks to 60,000 people of an evening means huge delivery trucks, all that kind of stuff. How do you ensure that the wharf is preserved as public space when this um, packing in and packing out is occurring constantly for events at a stadium? So the rest of the, as I mentioned before, the rest of the wharf, how this thing gets funded and becomes no cost to ratepayer taxpayer, and we've just recast the numbers and recast the feasibility, and we've got, I'll talk about the consortium about who does that, which lends some credibility to it, um, is that, of course, we have this urban development. So, you know, typically you have, like Wynyard, you have roads. And so um, we would, you know, after hours most likely bring those large vehicles through um, and you need buses and stuff like that for teams to arrive and fans and all that sort of drama but you know big road shows like good sh- big shows big opera that kind of thing they have lots of articulated trucks now somewhere along the lines we have to get people down to the main concourse which would be below above the lowest seating tier and uh, sorry above the lowest seating tier and below the highest um, which is where most of the circulation takes place and you're talking about big volumes of people so if you manage the timing at which the trucks can go you can share those kinds of big wide ramps that you would have people so I've seen there's one there um, uh, a stadium in Japan I went to see and they have a concourse that leads from the town the city um, nearby from the Shinkansen the high speed railway up to the stadium and this thing would be at least 40 meters wide um, because you are taking you know, forty thousand in this case, in that in that case, um, people through in pretty quick time. 
same deal for us. So you're always going to have large scale circulation areas, which if managed could be used for trucks during the night, say when you bring the show in, and then during the day when the fans come and go, or in the evening when the fans come and go, they can use the same space. So big ramps, gentle gradients, that kind of stuff. How do the ports of Auckland feel about this? <laughs> when we spoke to the uh, CEO of the ports of Auckland um, last year, he said, this decision's above my pay grade, you'll have to talk to the shareholder. The shareholder is Auckland Council. And? What do you think? <laughs> I'm asking you. <laughs> but I think what we are seeing, <laughs> if you, if I think what we are seeing is that we're starting to see an emerging conversation on the future of particularly the cars, which is the tricky part. If you, you know, your office is next to ours facing the Waitemata. These are the cars that are stored on the wharf for two or three days at a time. Absolutely. And we would see those wharves covered and emptied twice a week. Do you reckon, Jeremy, minimum? Mm -hmm. And I reckon there's at least a thousand a day, a, 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 a trip. So that's a couple of thousand a week. I don't know where they go, except for the fact that if you drive anywhere in Auckland, what Auckland has become fundamentally through all the suburbs is it's a big parking lot. Everyone has a car. Most families have at least one. It seems almost one per person at times, which is just mad um so you know and i think my slight outrage and of course self-interest drives that to some degree but i think we're all genuinely kind of outraged i live in the city i work in the city so you know i'm, I'm done but everyone else it's challenging you'd but like to we, use your car less that's what you're saying oh i don't even use i hardly right. use my car anyway but right now everything east of queen's wharf is off limits in terms of the waterfront and that's port activity and I sense that, you know, if you look at it, we've gone west, we've gone out to Winyard, that's almost as far as we can go. Now there's the plan, they're redoing the seawall along that, along the Key Street. And what's to accompany that is, of course, the ferry base that's going to be upgraded as part of those works. And, you know, the, it's inexorable that the public are going to demand that we move, move east. And if you think about it, traditionally, the higher value parts of the city were always where government was established up in the around the university area, then down Shorten Street, and then we have Britomart, of course, but then Britomart abruptly ends at the water with the red fence. And that's just not good enough. Um, and, you know, the only purpose for that is cars. I mean, come on. Does your screen require the ports to move as a whole, or they could still be located just to the east of the building that you're no, proposing? No, so the whole of Bledisloe Wharf gets repurposed um, and redeveloped a la Winyard Quarter. Everything east of there stays. We know the ports have signalled that they go. Um, now, signalling is different, as we know, it, to reality. Um, signalled that they're moving east or that they're moving locations completely? That they're moving locations completely. And we know, for example, you know, Shane Jones is working on getting the ports to move to Whangarei. Um, they could conceivably get the cars to move to Whangarei. There are some other major infrastructural challenges with that. For example, double-tracking all of the train lines from Auckland to Whangarei. Or... Covering State Highway 1 all the way to Whangarei and car transporters, which I don't think is a good idea given the state of the roads. So that's not without its challenges either. But the ports have signalled that they would. They've done a master plan. Uh, I think they've signalled that within 30 years or 40 years they have two options, which is fundamentally the Manukau or the Firth of Thames. Both of those are hard. You could possibly argue that if you move that close to Tauranga, why would you do the Firth of Thames? But then we like to see competitive competition, so it's probably good to have two decent-sized ports in one region. Having said that, already Auckland is more of an import port and Tauranga is much more of an export port. So 
It's you, mentioned, a big you mentioned the Sydney Opera House before, and it sometimes feels that Auckland's always felt under this pressure to have an equivalent building. And that always feels like a bad point from which to start developing a building because you're trying to measure up to something that is a genuine one-off and that can never be repeated. Do you think there's a danger in that aspiration and that the city will always fall short of trying to compete when it tries to compete with an icon like the Sydney Opera House and that a building may not be the solution to the waterfronts issues? Um, I think it's natural that we make the comparison, but it's not why we make the comparison um, or why we do the project. You have to, um, if you undertake any decent architectural process, you will always consider precedent, um, and as you should. Interestingly, when we started on this, we the building that we looked to as for precedent was actually the Auckland Museum, um, because it occupies an iconic position in the landscape. Um, it's a building of not dissimilar scale, um, and the it's so it seems to me incredibly well loved. And so one of the tests that we put was that you know this building has to be really well loved. So. We have gone for something that is reasonably serene, we think, in a fairly simple and enduring kind of form, rather than trying to do something too uh, sculptural, um, you know, expressive. It could you could go down that path. You could you know do the Zaha Hadid or the Frank Gehry or whatever, a big pile of wonderfulness. Um, but we felt that that wasn't appropriate. We also believe that. The form we've come up with and the relationship to water. If you go to um, French Polynesia, if you go to Raiatea or Huahine, uh, arguably the launching place for Polynesian exploration, including New Zealand, Aotearoa, um, they built marae on the water. Their most significant buildings were on the edge of the water or sometimes on platforms established in the water. And that's why we've done what we've done. Um, we see this as a very Pacific building. So if I talk about that, and then I mention the pavilion kind of roof, the abstracted pavilion roof, you can see where we're trying to go with it. Um, and the kind of space that uh, a fale, um would uh, generate, which has a perimeter, um, a, a transparent but threshold condition to its interior, you can see the spatial patterns um, are kind of similar. We may be you know, a flight of vanity to suggest that we could even play in such sensitive ways. And one of the things that we're really, really looking forward to is actually properly engaging with Mana Whenua because we think that that is such a key to unlocking this and such a key to authenticating it. Um, our first moves are our own and love them or hate them. Um, we think they have resonance. Um, and that's really, really important. And the future and the uniqueness of New Zealand is so important, um, and who's best to unlock that than Manawhenua? Anyway, I mean, one of the questions we have, and you know, I'm speaking very frankly here, one of the questions we've had is, of course, you know, we've, our dear friends at um, at Stopstigneau Harbour, um, and believe me, I'm a boating, I'm a yachty as well, so I know that you don't, we don't, no one wants anyone to go further into the harbour in terms of going northwards off the existing wharves, and ours only goes slightly westwards into that bay sort of pointing towards the base of Queen's Wharf. So there's no extra extension of the wharf required. Co correct. Mm. Um, in the northerly direction. Um, so we're just sort of 
pushing the basin a little bit on the western side of Bledisloe Wharf. Um, we believe that the key to unlocking those matters is not for Pakeha, it's actually for engagement with mana power. And, you know, we've, we've through um, our Anthony Rao who's part of our um, consortium, he's been quietly reaching out to mana So you've Pakeha. begun that process of engagement. Oh, yeah. yeah. But we haven't, had, we haven't had the conversation yet, but Anthony's been socialising it with them so far. And, you know, they're busy like everybody and... Obviously, they, they may not see this as an urgency, but um, we certainly see them as, a, as absolutely vital in um, authentic, authenticating the moves that we do and engaging them and giving the thing a, its, its life. You mentioned that you haven't really found a stadium in the world that has active edges and is publicly accessible in the way you'd like this one to be. Is there a reason for that, and does, does that give you some cause for trepidation that this hasn't been done before? It's uncommon to sink these things into the ground, except the in the case of the Ram Stadium in Los Angeles that I was talking about, it's half in, half out. Um, it is 25 metres under the ground. Um, the reason they say for that is because it reduces the seismic load on an otherwise very tall structure, because this thing's really tall. It's 70,000 seats as it stands, and it's a, quite a small footprint, so it's very vertical. Um, I think it's something to do with, well, um, it may be something to do with the fact that they're close to the airport approach paths, but the plane seemed a long way overhead when I was there. Um, but I get the seismic thing. Um, you know, tall buildings, especially ones that are quite skinny, which if you take a cross-section of a stadium, are they are skinny, are kind of hard to hold up. So sinking it is, is no bad thing. Um, but, you know, there are other examples of buildings in the water. Um, the, uh, there's been a very fine art gallery built in, Middle East recently, underwater with the Louvre, which is a preposterous idea when you have such remarkable treasures inside. I think it's enormously risky, but they have so much, probably so much money, they can deal with it in many ways. And some of those techniques we would deploy. Um, in terms of things like tsunami risk and sea level rise and all those sorts of good things, I hate to say this, we've relied on science. So we rely on government agencies who we know, like... Um, you know, NEWA and uh, GNS Science and so forth, who we know are populated by people who do not have a political agenda except good science. And they suggest that the water, um, you know, 1.5 metres in the next 50 to 100 years um, is probably reasonable. At the moment, so let me just give you a quick lesson on how levels work. So mm -hmm. us architects talk about RLs. So an RL is called a relative level. It is relative to the sea level. And the sea level in this case is called mean water high springs, which means the highest reasonable astronomical tide, discounting low-pressure storms and all sorts of stuff that cause that then to grow. So if we took Key Street at the moment, it's about RL5, so it's five metres above the highest high tide currently. If you add one and a half metres to that, it's 3.5 metres. Now, the, in the history of New Zealand, both scientific and oral histories, in the last thousand years, the largest tsunami I think that's been through is about 1.5 metres. So 1.5.145 still tells us we have two metres of freeboard in the next hundred years, given the likelihood of another event, with, uh, say a thousand year tsunami in this region. The other thing is that if a tsunami happened to crest the top of this thing and flood the stadium, it's not so bad because you have warning. And remember, it's just mostly concrete with a bit of grass at the bottom. The big problem we've got there is the Brittemark train station's flooded, the whole of the downtown's flooded. You've got major infrastructural challenges other than 
hey, the game's not on this weekend, you know. So um, we don't see that as being the world, the greatest risk. And like I say, we've accounted for it. You're taking this to Amsterdam to present it at the World Architecture Festival, which is a global competition of both built and unbuilt projects. How do you rate your chances? Who knows? I'll tell you what, though. What's amazing is how well represented New Zealand is. Um, you know, we're always, uh, we're an outward-looking nation because we're tiny and we're at the bottom. We're not at the end of the world, but you can see it from here. And I think you come down all the way down to the cul-de-sac where we are and you turn around and you look back. And um, we always like to... I was talking to someone about this this morning. We always like to compare ourselves to the rest, but there's nothing wrong with benchmarking. That's why a wonderful thing about comp, you know competitions is you know it's peer to peer. So, and moreover, it's a conversation about what may be a thing or what might be good or what might be considered. And it's really important to be part of that conversation. Otherwise, you're just nowhere. We are social. You, what do you think your chances are of this thing actually being built? Well, I think my chance, our chances are extremely high. <laughs> Having said that. The only thing, it's interesting, you know, we now, um, this is an enormous project. Um, it is self-funding, so the development pays for the stadium. The development pays for the stadium because the public gives the development company a whole lot of land on that wharf to no, profit from, yeah? No, the, the land gets bought from the port company. Now, we do add value. Mm -hmm. There's no question, and that's the key. Um, so the process from here is to get all of the partners and stakeholders to the table to get a heads of agreement. Then we would want to undertake the plan change process because at the moment it's zoned industrial or port. There's a special kind of zone around it, um, which would convert it into this use that we propose. Then you bid it internationally and you get someone to come or maybe a consortium to come and develop it. And so it's exactly almost like when you caught it, except in this case... Um, it's been promote, you know, undertaken and promoted privately rather than um, by the government, um, which is perfectly good. But they, you know, no one has the balance sheet to be able to do it these days. So um, it seems natural that the internationals would want to. We think that the landholding model for Winnie Quarter, which is a 120-year lease, is fantastic. It's proven that the land values then therefore are freehold at in terms of value. But the critical thing for us, and as a passionate Kiwi. Um, you know, is that we continue to own the land because they ain't making no more of it. Mm -hmm. And it's, you know, it's a tāonga. So we've got to hold on to that stuff. So we think that model's really cool because the land remains in ownership. The use and the value is a temporary, or the use is permanent. The value is arguably temporary for a, a major sovereign fund or consortium, um, and we would get it to go. So we reckon it's a win-win-win for New Zealand, basically. Richard, thank you. And good luck at the World Architecture Festival. Thank you very much. You've been listening to The Good Citizen, everybody. I'm your host, Jeremy Hansen, and this podcast has been brought to you by Britomart, the nine-block precinct at the heart of downtown Waterfront, Auckland, where good citizens and good ideas are always welcome. Thanks for listening. Now, something you may not know, we've just launched the Spin-Off Members, a new program that allows readers to contribute to the future direction of our coverage. We'll regularly survey readers to find out what you care about and want us to cover. And if you donate over $80 annually, you'll get a free copy of the spin-off's first book, spanning the first five years of the site. Plus a lot of other cool things. So head to the spinoff.co.nz slash members to find out all about it.
Kia ora e te iwi, te Ahe Butler here, podcast manager at The Spin-Off. If you enjoy listening to our podcasts, consider supporting our mahi by signing up to become a Spin-Off member at thespinoff.co.nz slash donate. The Spin-Off Podcast Network.